I feel like we're just stuck. And so what does that mean? So I think more than anything, as we look at this chapter tonight and what Paul is teaching the church in Corinth is examining our Christian conscience. And what does that mean to have a Christian conscience? And, and you're going to hear me a couple of times tonight reference this. And I think one of the issues, too, for us as the church, and Pastor Brennan touched on this last Sunday, is this idea that we have to start seeing our Christianity as our true identity. And we have to start removing the adjectives of men that we put in front of our Christianity. And what I mean by that is there aren't going to be Americans in heaven, so I'm not an American Christian. Um, I will be there with all the Christians of all the world in heaven. There won't be an Ethiopian corner. There won't be an American corner. There won't be a Canadian corner. No. And so as I live here on this earth, so does it have to be applicable. In these times, the Christianity is universal, and I must live that universally uh, to other people. In the same way that my, my where I'm from, I'm not a northern Christian. I'm not a southern Christian. I'm not a white Christian. I'm not a liberal Christian. I'm not a conservative Christian. No, I am just a Christian. And what does that mean for us as we live in this time? And, and more and more, these adjectives that we're putting in front of the identity that Jesus has given as a new being and believers in him, what are we put those are those adjectives are created by men and as paul teaches us man's wisdom is flawed man's wisdom is terribly flawed and we need to seek after the perfect wisdom of jesus christ so if we believe that we are made anew in him and we are adopting the identity of jesus christ being a christian we have to start seeing that as our sole identity and begin removing the adjectives that we continually see foisted upon us um, so what does that mean and and so one, I, I read verse one, one, I love Paul, um, you know, so to put some context into this, Paul, again, is dealing with the church in Corinth. And one of the continual issues that Corinth had is it was a pretty worldly place. Corinth is a, was an amazing, wealthy place. It was a port city. So it had a lot of wealth in this time, and they were a very prideful people. I find it very interesting uh, that outside of Corinth, if you called someone a Corinthian, it was an insult. But if you were in Corinth, they were very happy with themselves. They very much liked themselves very much. I find it a very fascinating, interesting. For those of you who've ever been outside of the country, it's very interesting. In America, we're very prideful that we're Americans. And, and I'm, I'm a very proud American, but I've traveled abroad, and I find it very interesting when you go outside of this country's borders what people think of us. And oftentimes, it's not the most flattering of things. They think we're prideful. They think we wave our flag too much. They think we're too loud. We're too brash. We're too boastful. So I find it is just as an interesting duality that the same thing existed for the people of Corinth as well. They were a very prideful people, but internally very prideful. And Paul, being extremely knowledgeable and humble... Um, again, to put that in context, too, Paul is not only a Roman citizen. Paul is also a former member of the Sanhedrin. So this means he's an very intelligent and a very learned man and a very elevated man in status. And being that he is a Roman citizen, that means that wherever he went through that world at that time, if Rome had conquered it, he had certain rights and privileges held over other people as being the status of a Roman citizen. So here again, we see the humility of Paul played out through this letter to the Church of Corinth over and over and over again. This is a very high and elevated person. In verse 1, it says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, and knowledge puffs up, but love 
edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. What does that mean? So again, the church in Corinth has this really cool, interesting problem set that they keep wanting to know. Can I still do this and still be a Christian? They have this problem all the time. And they're constantly coming at Paul, whether it's about marriage, whether it's about all the elements of what it means to be a Christian, and can I still this do and but? So this is the first thing. And then the other part, and we'll get to this in this chapter as well, is that what you have here are new believers in Christ. There are Christians now in Corinth, and they're a little prideful now in their new knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're a little bit knowledgeable. They've gotten some knowledge, and knowledge creates pride, and they've gotten a little prideful. And there are other people in Corinth who are newer Christians, and they're experiencing still some of the life of what it means to be a Corinthian and the practices and rituals of being a Corinthian. And they're kind of casting a little bit of shade, as the young people say, on these newer believers. These people, that have, now they're enlightened in their Christianity, and now they're being a little boastful. And what Paul is quickly reminding them then is that we know that we have all, all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, and but love edifies. People who have knowledge, it's very prideful. Having knowledge, I know more than you, or, or you, have a, you see it in the workplace where someone might have a little bit more pride because they're the boss and they keep it clustered to them and they don't share it with other people. It's like their little power thing. You know, knowledge is power. But I think this is really important too. Not only can knowledge create pride, but also, you know, as Christians, what are we to be known by in verse one? Our love edifies. They will know us by our love for one another. And as we examine this idea of what it is to have a Christian conscience, we will be known to this world by the love that we have for other people. Not our pride, not our knowledge, not anything else. They will know us by our love. And I find that such a profound statement for Christianity. In verse two, if anyone, again, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Again, Paul reminding them that man's wisdom is fallible. Man's wisdom is flawed. And only Jesus Christ and God's knowledge is perfect. Again, the humbling of oneself before God. I know absolutely nothing at all, only that knowledge that I've received from the Lord. And this is where as Christians, we also have to put our trust in Jesus at all times. Our knowledge is flawed. Our knowledge is imperfect. This is why we trust in the things that we cannot see. That's called faith. We have faith in those things that we can't understand. There are elements of the Bible that I'm never going to get, and I accept that. I know one day in heaven, I will ask the Lord, and he will tell me. And that's what faith is. I know for so many people, so many elements of Christianity can be a stumbling, whether that's from, was the earth created in a literal seven days? That's a common one we get a lot, right? And I go, yeah, I believe it. Sure, the Bible tells me to have faith like a child. And, and if the Lord wanted to expound on that and think in that and put all those things in, he would have said it. And if it's different, maybe he, one day he'll tell me. But I believe on faith. The Lord created the heavens and the earth in a literal seven-day calendar. I do. And that's okay. And that's the way we ought to be. But if anyone, verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. We will be known by our love for other people. We'll be known by our love for each for others. And this is why I think it is so important in the current world that we live in, that our identity, that we are known first by the words that we use to describe ourselves, the adjectives which we put in front of ourselves to describe me, that Christian needs to have the supremacy in our definition of our identity and who we are. Our identity has to be rooted in Jesus. And this is why I think in the world in which we live, we're so quick to throw these adjectives to define us, these adjectives that are created by men 
that we throw out in front of who we are, and those are flawed. And we have to be careful about that. I'm not a conservative Christian. I don't... I might have conservative beliefs, but I want to be known more as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ. And I think the importance in that is that allows me to be able to look at the myriad of issues that we have in our culture right now and to not see them through a political filter that I've chosen to accept because that's the way I was raised, that's my ideology, that's the economic philosophy of which I espouse to, and I blend my Christianity in with it. No, I want to be open to how Jesus sees things, and I want to see it through his filter, not the filters that I impose on myself. And that is a hard thing to do in our current world. I think a lot of us right now look at the circumstances and try to wrestle with the circumstances of our time and say, well, I support this, but if I say I support this, this puts me on team B. (laughs) And if I say I, I don't support, then I go on team A. And we've got to start, again, this, this bipolar spectrum that we're being conditioned to as a people. And I think, again, you know, I want to be known by my love for others because Christ first loved me. There is a supremacy in that. Does that mean I accept and condone things that are not of God? No, but I don't condemn those who struggle with things that I don't struggle with. Again, you know, praying through all things. So, again, we have to start thinking through the filter of Jesus Christ as a supremacy in our life first. I am a Christian first. And I will tell you that the sooner we begin to do that, the more we show to the world what love truly means. And I think it's a, it's a huge, huge concept that's tough, and I think it's tough for the church. So they've come to Paul with this issue, verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. See, what had happened was is that to be a, cor- a Corinthian, all meat in the markets. See, anyone who's ever been abroad, you've seen the big wide open markets, right? So Soda City, all these farmers markets. Corinth has this big mammoth market. They've got several. They're a port city. They're very profitable and wealthy. And all the meat that was butchered in these markets was worshipped, was presented to an idol. It was a part of just being a Corinthian. It was part of the ritualized practices of being a Corinthian was this meat that was offered up to this idol. And they've come to Paul now and said, hey, what about this meat? Can I eat it? Can I eat it? And then on the other hand, you've got the side saying, can I eat it and still be a Christian? And like I said, you've got this other side who's saying, oh, yo, you guys who eat the meat, you're worshiping idols. You're wrong. And then they condemn them for it. So we have these two problem sets right now for the Corinthian church, that they're coming before Paul. And what I love so much about Paul, Paul never gave a simple answer to anything. If you ask Paul a yes or no question, you got a dissertation on what yes or no might mean. Paul is going to give you a global perspective on the questions that you bring to him. And that's why, and I love that because as a believer, that's what we ought to do. We ought not see things through our self-imposed filters, but no, globally, how would Christ look at this situation? What would Jesus do in this situation? You know, when I was a younger person, everybody used to wear the WWJD bracelets. You know, what would Jesus do? And then it became faddish, but it's a true statement. And as we assess everything around us, what would the Lord have us do in this time? Is what, again, this idea of examining our Christian conscience, you know, so Paul tells them, is look, there's no other God but one. Verse five, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the father of whom all things and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ through him, all are things and through him, we live. Verse seven, however, there is 
not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 8, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So what's Paul saying here? It's a false god. If you believe it's a false god, eat the meat. It's okay. But if you think that by eating the meat, you're worshiping this false idol, then don't eat the meat. Food does not condemn us to God. I find it so ironic today that as a believer in Jesus Christ, Christ the new covenant who came to free us from the law, we have denominations that are putting people back under the law and proclaim Jesus Christ as Messiah. I find it very fascinating that there are denominations of Christianity that practice the Levitical law as somehow a part of their overall salvation. And they would say things like, you have to follow the Levitical law, you can't eat pork, you can't do this, you can't do this, and all these laws. As somehow this is going to, them, somehow the food that we eat is going to save us or not, and somehow my salvation is going to be secured whether or not I do or I do not eat pork. Pork's the big sticking one for a lot of these. And here what Paul says, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not, we are the worst. You know, it's very interesting you know, so what Paul is saying, look, if you believe it, you believe it. But I, I look at these verses, and some of you might be saying, you know, you're sitting here tonight, that's great, Pastor Bobby. I don't, I don't know if we're sacrificing meat to idols anymore. This is a really great ancient biblical lesson about sacrificing meat to idols. That's really wonderful for the Corinthian people. But where does this apply to me today? And I would really challenge some of you. And I know this is very, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Brennan spoke on social media. And the things I might say tonight might seem that we might be becoming a little woke here at Calvary Chapel Northeast. But no, I think what we really are is we're seeking to be true believers in Jesus Christ. We're truly seeking to take the truths of his word, apply it to our life so that we can go out and be a people who profess a knowledge in Jesus Christ, not a position that's been created for us by men so that a lost and dying world may know him more through his saving grace alone. So, you know, look at the world in which we live in right now. And I see believers arguing on social media about a lot of things and chastising people for one another. And I ask the question, are we sacrificing things to idols today? What are we sacrificing to idols to in our lives today that we're condemning others for, for not having a lack of understanding of what ours are or what our things are? And what I mean by that is Americans, we're very proud in our rights. I am. I'm proud in our rights. Very much so. But are we holding those up and sacrificing those in idols for other things? You know, I think about symbols that we have here in the South. Um, my whole life, till I moved here, I was 14 years old. And my whole life, my entire life, we have had a considerable and consistent debate about the Confederate flag. Nonstop. And I have seen people in the church argue about this habitually and consistently without ever truly examining what that symbol means to their brother and sister sitting in Christ next to them. I went through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru tonight. This is how much I'm reminded of this issue still today in our world. I went through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. The guy in front of me had a sticker on the back window of his car. It said, welcome to the South, big rebel flag, now go home. I thought, now that's not very hospitable. We're supposed to be known for our Southern hospitality. That's not very hospitable to put that on the back of your car. Welcome to the South, now go home. As if we are still wanting to be some separate nation that's not a part of the American nation. Listen, I know the Confederate flag causes lots of consternation. I think again in this country, we're examining things again in our culture and we're having honest discussions about them concerning statues. I know the issue of statues is inflaming to a lot of people and the idea of whether or not they should come down. But where I want us to be on these issues as believers is what would Jesus do? 
I'm again, I'm not whatever adjective you want to put in front of your Christian, not defining what it is. I want to know what Jesus would do, you know, and I've been a historian most of my life. I've been a historian for pretty much, um, I have a degree in it. And the first thing they taught me when I started in college in my history classes, what we must always do when we study history is to ignore historians. <laughs> they said, ignore the historians because all they do is regurgitate their interpretation of what we have seen. Go to the first person accounts, go to what they said, read what they wrote. They'll tell you why they did what they did and the motivations behind it. You know, and so there's the thing I think as Christians, what do we need to lay down for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? And what do we need to understand about what we may hold up as a right? I think as an American, you may tell me, yeah, it's my right to wave whatever flag I want. And I would agree with you. But is it the right thing to do as a believer in Jesus Christ? Is that knowledge that you have about what you think about what you have as your heritage? Is that really the banner under Jesus Christ that you wish to proclaim? Is that edifying in love for one another? If the highest commandment is still love, that we will be known by our love. Is it right that we would proudly proclaim a symbol that has been so divisive within the church and for our people and for our country? But as I said, don't take my word for it. Kenny, if you could go with the first slide. I want to read you something, and I want you to examine it through your conscience, through your Christian conscience, what it means. This is by William Tappan Thompson. William Tappan Thompson was the editor of the newspaper in Savannah during the Civil War. He wrote a lot of things. He designed a lot of things. One of the things he designed was the Confederate battle flag. And this is what he wrote when he presented the Confederate battle flag to the Confederate Congress on why it ought to be adopted. Okay, I'm going to read it for you. It says, such a flag would be a suitable emblem for our young confederacy and sustained by the brave hearts and strong arms of the South. It would soon take rank among the proudest ensigns of the nations and be hailed by the civilized world as the white man's flag. As a people, we are fighting to maintain the heaven-ordained supremacy of the white man over the inferior or colored race. A white flag would thus be emblematic of our cause. That's what he wrote. So when you say, it's my heritage that I wave a Confederate flag, you have to own your heritage. You can't say what this doesn't mean to you. And can you be proud of the fact that you live in the South? Yes. Can you be proud of the fact that you might have ancestors that fought for the Confederacy? Absolutely you can. We honor their service to a degree, but we can also admit that what they fought for was wrong and not be in denial of our pride. Southern pride's a big thing. You live in the South, we talk about pride. We have Southern pride pork products, Southern pride bacon, Southern pride sausage. We're a prideful people. But what does the word tell us? Go back. What does the Bible say about pride? For when we have knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. This is not a statement about whether or not you should wave a Confederate flag. I want you through the filter of your Christianity and what you claim to be as a believer in Jesus Christ and the love that will edify you to a lost and dying world and your fellows and believers in Christ to analyze the things which you want to define you. But you have to own what it's about. And my whole life, even growing up in the South, we've had another revision that's been foisted upon us. We say, well, the American Civil War wasn't about slavery. I say, guys, again, don't take my word for it. Let's read their words. Okay, so South Carolina, and this isn't a treatise on the American Civil War. I will tell you, do you know what the greatest tragedy of the American Civil War is? The politicians that pushed this country, the slave owners and the bankers and the politicians that drove this country for brother to kill brother to pick up arms against each other, they never bore the consequences of their behavior. 
The people who predominantly died in the American Civil War were middle to lower class people. And the people that pushed this nation over ideologies to separate one another, to pick up arms and kill one another, never faced that consequence. Do you know that there's a colony, a, a community, as a better word, in Brazil, they still celebrate their lineage of the 16 slave-owning families that moved there before the end of the Civil War because Brazil did not end the institution of slavery until the 1900s. They are literally picked up and left, moved to Brazil so they could still practice the institution of slavery, and their descendants still live there today. And they can't practice slavery anymore because it's abolished there. But every year they hold a reunion where they go back down to Brazil, wave a bunch of Confederate flags, and celebrate their heritage. The people who led this country to war against itself never bore the consequence of the thing that they created. That's the greatest tragedy. But again, we can't deny the origins of the conflict and somehow redeem it to say it's something that it wasn't. And I wanted to include another slide, but it would be too long. See, there was another guy who helped William Tappan Thompson design the Confederate battle flag. And there's a letter that I was researching. I don't want to put it up there for the sake of time. And what he said was, because I've seen this going around on social media, that somehow the Confederate flag is a religious emblem. And it's really funny. There was another guy. He was from South Carolina. He helped design it. And there's a letter. I think it's comical. And in the letter, he writes, I could include a religious element within this flag, which, which might bring us into a religious cause, but I think it not important because our cause is not religious. Thank you. Clarify that one. So again, don't take my words for it. If we don't believe that the Civil War was truly about slavery, well, let's look at the document of secession, which was signed in this state. In fact, it was signed in First Baptist Church downtown because the state house wasn't completed. Let's read their words. I'll read them for you. The government, the general government, as the common agent, passed laws to carry into effect the stipulations of the states. For many years, these laws were executed. But increasingly, hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery has led to a disregard of their obligations, and the laws of the general government have ceased to affect the objects of the Constitution. Next slide, please. These ends it endeavored to accomplish by a federal government in which each state was recognized as equal and had separate control over its own institutions. The right of property in slaves was recognized by giving to free persons distinct political rights, by giving them the right to represent and burthering them with direct taxes for three-fifths of their slaves, by authorizing the importation of slaves for 20 years, and by stipulating for the rendition of fugitives from labor. Go to the next two. The next one, we affirm that these ends for which this government was instituted have been defeated, and the government itself has been made destructive of them by the action of the non-slaveholding states. Those states have assumed the right of deciding upon the propriety of our domestic institutions and have denied the rights of property established in 15 of the states and recognized by the Constitution. They have denounced as sinful the institution of slavery they have permitted open establishment among them of societies whose avowed object is to disturb the peace and to align the property of the citizens of other states. They have encouraged and insisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes and those who remain who have been incited by emissaries, books, and pictures to servile insurrection. If the American Civil War isn't about slavery, why did they mention it so many times? You see, and this is the, this is the tra this, so people could ask the question, why in these times do we continue to relive a conflict that's now 159 years old since it began? That's a 159-year-old document. Because we have yet to really come to terms with this, and we have people who proclaim to be Christians still want to hoist this up over others without really acknowledging the implications that it may have for other people who share the pew next to you on a Sunday morning.
if Jewish people look on the swastika the same way that African-Americans look at the Confederate flag, what does that say about our interpretation? And are we willing to lay down a banner that doesn't really represent us? I've worn the uniform of this country for almost 14 years. I don't wear a Confederate flag on it. I wear the American flag, and I'm very proud of that fact to a certain degree. I'm proud that I represent this country. I don't represent the Confederate States of America because they wanted to leave it. Now, does that mean that we can acknowledge the service of people? Yes. Do we build monuments to them so that we look as a symbol of oppression? Do we name high schools after the founder of the Ku Klux Klan as a way of intimidating people during the Civil Rights Movement? Yes, Nathan Bedford Forrest is the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. He was a Confederate general. We've named high schools after him. Now, think about that. Do we have Adolf Hitler High School? But the founder of the Klan has a high school named after him in southern states. What message are we sending? And is this the message that Jesus would have us send? And I know some people may say, well, Pastor Bobby, they're statues. I don't worship a statue. And I would humbly tell you, I have seen over the last several weeks people who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ standing in front of these things, praying in front of these things, reading aloud what they represent. If that isn't a worship, I don't know what is. And I know that the Lord told me to have no graven image put in front of me. And I'm reminded of the slave of the Israelites of building a graven cow and falling down and worshiping it as they left Egypt. I am not offended by the idea of putting up a statue or taking it down of people that should never have had it to begin with. And what does that say about me as a believer in Jesus Christ? What meat am I worshiping to an idol and consuming and then cast on against someone else? That's your problem. You feel offended by it. It's my heritage. What does that say about us? What does that say about our Christian conscience? And see, it's so hard because some people might say, gee, Pastor Rob, that sounds a little liberal. No, again, I don't want to be known by a political ideology. I want to be known by the biblical ideology that Jesus Christ gave me and my identity in him. And I hope this makes sense. And I, I, please don't feel like I'm ranting because I'm not. I'm very passionate about this because I want us to be a church that represents supremely the love of Jesus Christ to all people in all places. And if we have banners and elements and symbols that are dividing the church of Jesus Christ, I don't want them. And some of you may say, well, Pastor Bobby, if they take down our statues, are they coming for, they'll come for the church next. Brothers and sisters, I got news. They already are. They already are. Pastor Brennan talked about California and their worship ban this past Sunday. California has banned worship in churches. Mm. Okay. Do you all know that seven days ago, the Navy banned its personnel who live on installations from going off the installation for in-person worship services? Mm -hmm. Think about that. The Navy has told people, you can't leave the base to go to church. This is America, Right? We're supposed to have the freedom of religion, right? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's part of my First Amendment. I don't see a parenthesis that says because COVID-19 showed up. I don't see a parenthesis that says because you kept your service under 100 people and you didn't wear a mask. And I certainly don't see it where it says I can just live stream it and that's okay too. No. I'm prof I, I, that's, and that's what ought to rile us up. And you know what's really tragic? I see a lot of Christians right now on social media defending things. I saw one defend the worship band. It's okay. Church is in me. Church is where I am. I can worship God in my car. I can worship God in my home. You know, I don't claim to be a prophet, but the last time I taught, I said that the persecution of the church was coming and it would be subtle. And it would come in subtly where those who are in the body would be the ones telling us to get out of the body. And that's where the persecution of the church would begin. We have brothers and sisters who claim to be of us that are telling us that we have to get out of the churches because 
We can't be here. Why? Says whom? My whole life, I've grown up under this notion of separation in church and state. They said, Pastor, you can't pray in schools. They said, Pastor, you can't rent a school as a church. They said, Pastor, you can't put that there because of the separation in church and state. Well, brothers and sisters, I'd like a lot more separation from the state right now, from the institution of the church. If the world has told me separation of church and state, that goes both ways. And I'd like you out of the Lord's house. You know, and again, no, amen to the Lord. That's where we ought to be as a Christian people. So the persecution of the church is here. And we're, and some of us are welcoming it. And we're saying, yay, that's a good idea. No, it's not. And that's where our passion ought to be when we look at the context of our world. And we look at verse 9 and 11. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Let us not be a stumbling to our fellow believers in Jesus Christ for things of no consequence, of, of symbols and banners and history that bears no consequence to perpetuating the love of Jesus Christ at all. The Bible tells us not to take offense lightly, too. But as someone who loves someone else in the name of Jesus Christ, we ought to be willing to lay that down. Jesus Christ went to a cross for you. What are you willing to lay down for the Lord, for your fellow believers in Jesus Christ? I say that. Look, there's a lot of phrases and a lot of things that make people feel really threatened right now in our community. I've been told before that I have male privilege, that I have white privilege. And you know my answer to those things? I'm not threatened by them. Because I, I can't emphatically prove it yes or no, so I say okay. Why? Because if I acknowledge it, I have the opportunity to tell someone about the love of Jesus Christ or maybe not offend a fellow believer. I'm okay with that. You can accuse me of male privilege or white privilege. I'm not offended. I'm not threatened because I can't tell you yes or no. So I say, okay, sure. Why not? What are we willing to lay down for the Lord? And that may be certain things in our lives that the Lord tells us to like, hey, lay this down for a fellow believer. And that may include certain things. Now, we don't lay down truth. We don't lay down the truth of the Lord. We're not going to condone things. And so we're going to, as we examine this idea of a Christian conscience, I've got some tips and we'll get to those. Verse 10 says, For if anyone sees you, you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And verse 11 says, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's the higher ethic which Paul is appealing to the church of Corinth. If it causes my brother to stumble, man, I'm going to give it up. If the eating of meat, look, I know sacrificial to idols, it means nothing. It's, it's fake. It's a fake God. You can eat the meat eat it. But if I eat that meat and it causes my fellow believer in Christ to stumble, what does that say? You know, we ask this question a lot in context to all the social issues we have right now, but it's the simple things even too. Can I get a tattoo? Can I smoke? Can I um, smoke marijuana? Can I drink alcohol? Can I go to a movie? Can I go see rated R movies? Can I watch Game of Thrones? I mean, think about all the applications with which we've asked these things whether or not can we engage in this behavior and still be a Christian because the Corinthian church is doing it all the time, all the time. And my answer to that is very simple again, but not really simple because it's tough. What is the standard for Christian conscience, right? What are those things at which we are going to stand on biblical truth to say in love, 
because our love edifies first. And in love we say. So there's just three simple tips that I'll give you. One, when we encounter any of these things, which might be a stumbling to a fellow brethren, and we have to present them, one, does it violate the Bible? First and foremost, does it violate the word of God? Okay, listen, the Bible has very much addressed the issue of sexual immorality, homosexuality, drunkenness, idolatry, you name it, keep going and going and going. We're not going to condone those elements which the Bible tells us explicitly those are wrong. End of story. So one, does it violate the word of God? Okay, cool, right? Got that one. And then we have this idea. Number two, the gray area. Should I do it? Okay, the word doesn't expressly tell me. I can't really find it. Should I do this? This is a gray area. So I would, I would put in this element tattoos. Man, tattoos are a big deal to a lot of people. I know my mom gets irate about the idea of tattoos. And somehow my generation has been a little bit more free and it's artistic expression and you can have a tattoo and not be a sinner. Got it. <laughs> Got it. But here's the thing. What is lawful is not always good. Okay. Just because it's right in the eyes of the law may not be right in the eyes of God. So my question to you is to answer with a question. If this is a gray area and you say, man, the Bible doesn't tell me, what's the Holy Spirit tell you? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you right now? As you examine your Christian conscience in the midst of all of this, what's the Lord telling you? What's the Holy Spirit, your guide that's been given to us by God the Father to guide us through these times? And you say, well, gee, how do I know that? Well, one, we pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And two, we stay in tune to his word. We don't separate ourselves from God through sin, and we continue to read his word and ask and pray for his wisdom. That's how we discern these gray areas. They go, you know, I, I, man, I can't think. What's one? I'm trying to think of one. You know, rated our movies, right? Can you, I, I don't know, but the Lord tells me, look, is it edifying? Should I put these things in front of my eyes? Should I do this? Here's one. Can I sit in the bar of a restaurant when the restaurant's full, not drink alcohol, and is that okay? right? That's, I think that's a conflict for a lot of folks and some folks specifically. And my answer to that is pray and seek the Lord and have him tell you what it is. Because if you're with someone who may have an issue with alcohol or you don't, or you've espoused that you're not drinking, do you want to present the image that you are? Not in legalistic pride. Now this isn't legalism to say, I don't do these things and that makes me holier and better than you. No, what's the Lord telling you to do? So just ask and seek the Lord and seek the Holy Spirit. I don't have, I can't, where in the Bible does it say, I, I don't know. Can I sit in the bar of a restaurant and still, still be okay? I don't know. What's the image that's, that's presenting to the world around you? Or maybe a non-believer who knows you in the workplace that might be confused about the image that that presents if they walked in there at a dinner. I don't know. That's called being circumspect, right? I care for your spiritual well-being that I put aside the things that I know are lawful, but they may not be good. Does that make sense? This is a, you know? And so, and again, how do we, we stay attuned to the Holy Spirit in our lives? And when we feel that prompting from the Lord, even when there's things that we go, God, it's okay, I can do this, right? I'm, I'm allowed to run a red light, right? I can, do, I, well, not really. The law says we're supposed to obey the law. But if I run that yellow light and it's a little bit too close, that's okay, right? I don't know. Is it causing a stumbling to a fellow believer? Pray and seek the Lord. These are the things where we just have to continually abide in Jesus Christ and pray for his wisdom and we receive that answer. And number three, look out for the struggles of others. Look out for the struggles of others. That question of Christian conscience, when we, we, we pray and seek the Lord, we're looking out for our fellow believer in Jesus Christ. If I know that you have an issue with something, even if I'm lawful to do it, would it be right through my behavior to tempt another believer? My response to that is absolutely not. But how do I know that? How do I, how do I know, for example, that someone may struggle with the sin of pornography, right? 
And I know that if I come in on a Sunday morning and I start talking about a TV show that's littered with it, that I ought not be putting before my eyes anyway because sexual morality is a sin, how do I know that they, they're not saying, Pastor Bobby does it. Pastor Bobby does it. If I don't know their struggle, if I'm not seeking to know my fellow believer in Jesus Christ, and I'll go back to this issue again, I've talked about the Confederate flag, and I don't want to bring it up too much, but what if that causes your fellow believer to be angry, to be wounded, to be hurt? What if that causes a stumbling in their life for others? Think about the well-being of their spiritual well-being. Lay that down. Lay that down for them that we may edify the Lord through our life and for our love for one another. I know that's a tough thing. Listen, to swallow our pride is, is a difficult thing. And the Corinthians were a prideful people. Man, they celebrated their pride. They thought it was great that the world hated them and mocked them. And all that made them was a more prideful people. And what Paul is saying to them, hey, look, verse 13, if food makes me, my, my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. And this is where we have to know the fellow struggles of our fellow believers. We have to be in things like simple things like Bible studies and, and things like men's groups. Not because, hey, they make us holier than thou or these are just obligations of the church that we come to. No, so I know what you're struggling with. This is what being in an open relationship with these people in our church and loving one another is, is knowing and praying for one another so that I might live my life in such a way that I don't stumble you. You know, I remember one time, I knew a story of a pastor who had a nice vehicle, <laughs> sold it, <laughs> sold it. I was like, bro, he's selling it for him. Can't be known as a pastor and drive that nice of a vehicle. That's lawful. Well, that's their problem. No, but if it stumbles, I'm willing to give it up. Man, that's a higher value ethic. And that's the type of Christian people we ought to be about. We ought to be about. And listen, I know it's tough. I know it's tough. Ephesians 4, 2 through C says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That's another letter to another church, the church of Ephesus. And Paul's writing that one to them too. I want to read that again. If you need to understand, what are we called to do for our fellow believers in Jesus Christ? We are to be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So does that mean whatever it is I'm laying down for the sake of that to keep the unity of Spirit in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do it. And I get over it. And here's the thing. It's these things, again, these adjectives of man that we put in front of our Jesus. What are we holding up higher and a higher value and supremacy of that? I know it's tough. I know it's tough. I know we live in a political age. And, and again, we live in this bipolar political age that somehow if you're, again, on Team A, you got to hate Team B, and Team B is going to hate you back. Man, and I feel like I said, believers, we are just stuck in the middle. We're stuck in the middle of all of this. And we go, you know, but again, to seek that unity of peace. You know, I, I don't tell people that I go to a multi-ethnic church. I go to a church because in God's house, all people are welcome and all people are treated equally. So, again, I don't go to a white church. And, again, we've, we've, in the South, we have this issue that the most divided hour on is Sunday morning. The, divided, the most divided hour of the week in the South is Sunday morning service. And we have divided our churches along ethnic lines. And, and I don't know the answer for that. But I don't, 
I don't go to a multi-ethnic church. I just go to the church because we want to be about Jesus and we want to be about his love and his gospel for one that our love may edify and be what we need to be to a lost and dying world. Our world is hurting right now for a savior. And I think for the first time in my life, I'm witnessing truly something that I, I am somewhat distressed about. I mean, I lived through 9-11, right? You know, 9-11 was like Pearl Harbor for my generation. It motivated so many of my friends and colleagues to join the military, right? And I remember the day after the towers fell, and people were lying in the streets with American flags and selling them everywhere, you know? It somehow it unified us as a people. And I look at our current set of circumstances right now in our country, and all I see is division. I see a central issue that our nation is confronting in, in, a, in a disease, and all I see is it dividing us. All I see, I don't see, I don't see unity of effort. I see a political division. We can't, even, we can't even come together on something as simple as wearing a mask without saying, well, what's the left or the right? Think about it. You know, we have been conditioned by a political system to hate one another and not even seek truth about what we ought to be doing without first retreating first to our political ideologies and our identities. This is a problem. You know, and I got to tell you, my fellow believers, one, the last time I preached, and I prayed about this, the last time I preached, I came off a little strong um, that may have made me presented that I believe in a certain political persuasion or a certain political candidate. And I really want to apologize about that because, number one, my goal is to teach the word of God and to teach the word of God to a people seeking after him, not to preach about a political candidate. And, and I will tell you, believing in a political candidate or a president does not make you a better believer. And supporting him doesn't make you a better Christian. And, and I got to tell you, I'm, <laughs> and to those people who might think that supporting someone makes you a better believer, I would ask you, where is he at? Where is he at on worship ban in California? You know, and for someone who might say, well, that's California. They got the right as a state to do what the things they want to do. Yeah, but when it comes to the Navy banning their sailors from leaving an installation to go to an in-person worship service. He has direct authority over the secretary of the Navy and he could fire him if he wanted to. And you know how I know that? Because he fired the last one when he disagreed over whether somebody not was, whether or not someone was a war criminal. So yeah, I don't, I, I look at these times and I know people have said, yeah, we got to vote for this guy because our religious liberty is rooted in defense of this guy. And I'm looking at him right now going, where are you at? Because I am thoroughly disappointed. I don't see the defense of the church. And again, this increasing religious persecution that's going to be foisted upon us, we can't look to men to solve our problems. We can't look to political institutions to save us. Look, the Supreme Court ruled a couple weeks ago that as long as you had uh, less than 100, that was okay for you to worship in church. I'll read to you again your First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I don't see a body count in parentheses. So if we put our hope in the court system, if we put our hope in a legal system, if we put our hope in a political system, it's going to fail and keep failing over and over and over again. As a Christian people, we have got to look up for our time is coming. And, and Pastor Brennan alluded to this Sunday. Listen, if we're not living in the end times, we're certainly living in the blueprint. We're certainly living, I mean, in the blueprint for what is going to happen in the future. I, I pray the Lord's quick return for us all. Um, you know, in this time that's began, I've, you know, I thought, what are we to do as a church? Where are we to go? It seems that we live in a time of just absolute madness and chaos and confusion and disruption and disunity. 
And I continue to say, look up and seek the Lord. And that's what we ought to do as a Christian people. These people came to Paul and they said, see these people eating the meat. You tell us if they're wrong or not. Cause I think I'm no longer wrong if I eat it. Cause I'm a Christian and I'm prideful. And then the other side said, again, they said, Hey Paul, can I still do this and still be a believer? That, I mean, that's what, and Paul gives them this wonderful dissertation on what it truly means to believe in Jesus Christ and to have an examination and sensitivity to our Christian conscience. What is our Christian conscience telling us to do in this time? And for me, more and more, I hear, seek the Lord and nobody else. Our faith must be rooted in Jesus Christ. It can't be rooted in, like I said, a political institution, a political persuasion, an economic philosophy or ideology. Those are ideas of men, and they're going to continue to fail everybody in this room. And if you're live streaming, y'all too. You know, um, it's, it's tough, and I think it's tough for believers right now. But again, as we come to a close tonight, and I really appreciate the opportunity from Pastor Brennan to, to teach. Um, again, I want to read you Ephesians 4, 2, and 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make that unity of effort. So whatever it is the Lord is telling you, look, I've talked a lot about symbols and things and banners and all that stuff, and you can disagree with me. You're open to, okay, I'll pray for you, and we can talk it out. I'm open to discuss anything with anybody. But whatever it is, and you may see, that is keeping that lack of unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace in Jesus Christ to your fellow believer, I pray that you put it down for the sake of Jesus Christ, that your love above all may edify Jesus Christ in you. Amen? Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.